Amen, amen, amen. Hey, it never gets old, does it? Isn't that awesome? Hey, welcome to the Church of 1122. I'm so glad that you're here. If you got your Bible, and I hope you do, if you'll grab it and go to the, uh, the book of Ephesians. It's kind of towards the back of the Bible. That's where we're going to be for the next eight weeks. Also want to say hey to the folks that are in the sanctuary. And if you are having, if you're in the worship center and you're having trouble finding seats weekly, um, then we have a video venue right through those doors there, a live band and uh, video service. I'm six foot two in that service, finally. And so we'd love for a few hundred of you in here to move over there over the summer. That would help us out a ton. Um, as you're turning to the book of Ephesians, I just want to, real quick, it's a special day for me. Uh, my family is here sitting on the front row, and while all of them are very important, one is the most important to me, and that's my grandma Mert is right here, dead and center. And can we just welcome my grandma Mert here to church, right? It's kind of loud, isn't it loud? Kind of loud. It's not exactly like Marion First Baptist, is it? But it's, it's awesome. Same Jesus, not as much smoke. All right, so... Uh, so what we're going to be doing over the next uh, eight weeks is we're studying the book of Ephesians, and, and a part of the reason why is um, I, I just want to get rooted in a little theology, which that'll, that'll be fun for me. Hopefully, I can explain it in a way that's fun for you, because what God's doing here at the Church of 1122 has been absolutely amazing, and I want to walk through the gospel and how he's doing what he's doing, because from the day that we opened in 2012, September, 1,500 and, let me do quick math, 545, 1,545 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ here at the church of 1122. Isn't that great? That is so great. So one thing we think our church is awesome as we compare ourselves to the church at Ephesus, we're really not that awesome, but God is awesome in what he's doing in the, the 1545 that he saved. Now, I was at a pastor's conference last week and a bunch of these kind of smug reformed brothers of mine that I really love and, and, and spend some time with. Um, some of the skeptics, if they ask, you know, how church is going, I'm going, it's going really well. Uh, you know, God saved this many people. And when they see that number, 1545, they would go, well, how do you know they're really saved? And here's, what, here's my response. I say, well, if you make it to heaven, I'll introduce you to them, right? That's what I do. <laughs> because essentially the whole message can be boiled down to this this morning is that God saves. It's not us. It's not the presentation, pray, thank goodness, but it's the power of the gospel that saves. And so there's no better book that really describes this than the book of Ephesians. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to go through the book of Ephesians. And it's really a letter. It's not even a book. It's a letter from a guy named Paul. And it's that long. That's the whole thing. Okay. There's a little bit on this side. There's a little bit on this side. That's it. And I also promised you men during our Song of Solomon series that I would train you in the book of Ephesians so that you could be a Bible expert. And you don't even have to know all the rest of it yet, okay? Just those pages right here. And then, um, as you lead your family, like you've been called to lead your family, you can always answer all the gospel questions with right here in the book of Ephesians. So I want you to grab onto it, and I want you to read it every week from now until the time we're over. So... You already know a bit about the church at Ephesus because we studied it in our walk through Acts. Remember, we did it a year and a half in the book of Acts. And so you guys remember back in Acts chapter 19, that's when the church at Ephesus got planted. And you'll remember the apostle Paul, he goes into Ephesus and, and his power was growing so much and so many crowds were coming to see him and he was so full of the Holy Spirit that the Bible says that people were taking his handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched and that they were going and laying it on sick people and the sick people were getting healed. That means that, that Paul would blow his nose in a Kleenex, they'd take the Kleenex and rub it on somebody that was sick and they would, the sick would be made whole. That's where the term holy snot comes from. It's right there in Acts chapter 19. 
And then you'll remember there are these guys called the seven sons of Sceva, and they were trying to work in Jesus' name, but they didn't know Jesus. And, and again, it's right there in Acts 19. Um, the, the seven sons of Sceva were the, were the itinerant Jewish exorcists. And so they were trying to cast out demons. And so they go and they find this guy that's possessed by a demon. And they say, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, get out. And then the demons replied to these seven sons of Sceva. Do you remember this? And they said, we know who Jesus is. We've heard of Paul, but who are you? So let me just warn all the exorcists in the room, all right? If you're going to cast out a demon this afternoon and they start talking junk back to you, you might just want to run away. Because here's why. The one demon-possessed man jumps on the seven sons of Sceva. And the Bible in Acts 19 says that they leave naked and wounded. So if you get in a fight and you start the fight with pants and you end the fight and you don't have pants anymore, that's like a wound that counseling will not take away from you, okay? So then the people in Ephesus hear that this, is, this stuff is going on and Paul plants a church there. Hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of people begin to get saved in Ephesus, all right? And then the Bible says that every person in Ephesus hears the gospel. And the gospel, the gospel permeates the, the city so profoundly that it changes the socioeconomic construct of the city of Ephesus, all right? And Ephesus was a big metropolis kind of city. It's not like Dylan, like eight people get saved in a revival, all right? It's a big, big deal. And in fact, it's such a big deal that the, um, the silversmith that would make these false idols that people were buying, that there were so many Christians now in Ephesus that the idol makers could not sell their idols anymore. And so they, they have a revolt, a rebellion against the church. That's what was going on in this church at Ephesus. So what God is doing here at the church of, of 1122 is incredible and he should be praised. But we are JV in our little Walmart compared to what was happening at Ephesus. All right, it changed the entire structure of the city. It would be like if every, if every spring, if um, Shad Khan and Roger Goodell had to call me on the phone. Pastor Doby, yes, sir, what's up, fellas? What can I do for you? Hey, we're trying to put together our fall football schedule here at uh, Everbank Field, and we just need to know when saturated the revival is in the fall because we don't want to be on the same weekend you are because we know the whole city will be at 1122 and won't be here at the game. And if I were to go, well, actually, I'm a big Jags fan, so I tell you what, um, you do a late game, we'll meet there early, you just let us use Everbank, and then we'll stay and root on the Jags, because we need help, all right? That would be, and they were like, deal, high five, high five. That's the kind of gospel power that was happening in the church of Ephesus. And not only that, um, I, our church has a great staff and all of that, but the staff at the church of Ephesus is unbelievable. It was planted by Paul. It was pastored by Timothy. All right, so Paul is writing books of the Bible. Timothy gets First and Second Timothy in the Bible. If you get books of the Bible written to you, you're kind of a big deal. You get Pastor of the Year award. And John, like one of the disciples, John, he was one of the elders at, at this church in Ephesus. Now, we have awesome elders. We've got legit old guy elders that we love and, and honor and respect. But our elders, they like read the Bible. Their elders wrote the Bible. Do you see what I mean? So this church, they, we are JV compared to what was happening here. And so what we're going to do over the next eight weeks is we're going to study about this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus to make sure this church and its individuals are grounded in the gospel. And then one of the things you're going to see in this book that's really great 
is you can kind of divide the book. It's only, it's only six chapters. So you can kind of divide this book really in the first half and the second half. And in the first half, chapters one, two, and three are going to be about the gospel about a cosmic view of the gospel in chapter 1, about an individual view of the gospel in chapter 2, about the church's role in the presentation of the gospel in chapter 3. And then you're going to shift gears, and the second half of the book is going to be the implications of the gospel. That if you are, if you get the gospel, if you surrender your life to Jesus, if you're actually in Christ, then, then this is how you live. This is how it affects your church. This is how it affects your family, your kids, at work, the whole thing. And then you're going to hop back up in chapter 6 and we're going to do spiritual warfare, put on the full armor of God, and that's how it closes. So we're about to dig in. If you're a note taker, you're going to love it. If you're new to church, I'm going to try to explain some some, um, systematic theological terms in ways that rednecks from Dylan like me can understand. So here we go. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 starts off this way. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God. Now, the fact that Paul writes this book gives hope to us all. Because if you'll remember, if you're new to Bible study, you you might not know this. But Paul used to be a guy named Saul, and he was a religious terrorist. So on the one hand, he was a religious man. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means that if you think you're good, Paul was better. He was better at keeping the list of things you ought to do better than you. And if you think you're bad, Paul was worse. He was a religious terrorist. So I don't, regardless of what you did at your 4th of July party, I doubt you persecuted Christians for their faith. And that's what Paul did. And God saved Paul. So if God can save Paul and use Paul, you know what that means? There's hope for everybody in here. That, that on the one hand, you can't be good enough to earn it. And on the other hand, you could have never done anything so bad that you were too far for God to reach. It's also good news that you know your college roommate can still get saved. That's how hopeful and big the grace of God is. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and I love this, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. See that little phrase, in Christ Jesus? It's going to show up 10 times just in the 14 verses that we're looking at this morning. And so really the main theme of the whole book is this, is that your identity is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father for his glory. I'm going to read it again. Your identity is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father for his glory. If you grew up in church around Jacksonville, you probably, you probably thought it was all about activity and that activity preceded identity. That is not the gospel. What we're going to find here in the book of Ephesians is it's the exact opposite, that, that identity precedes activity, that you've got to know whose you are And then you can act that way. But so many people, especially in the South that grow up in churches, think that that God's good and that you're bad, so you've got to try harder. And depending on your church, you get a list of the things that that you're not supposed to do. Me in the front row grew up with, um, you're not supposed to drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Remember, I've talked to you about that about a million times. That is not the gospel, all right? And again, I told you, grow up in Dillon, all the girls chewed, so that would have been problematic. So... It's not about do right so that you can be in his family. It's the exact opposite. It's if I am in Christ, then me being in Christ changes everything, changes my activity. So this is really about identity. And you thought God was all hung up on your activity. He's not hung up on your activity. He's hung up on are you in Christ? Because in God's economy, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Okay, Adam, like Adam and Eve from the garden, okay, they, they sin first and then that sin gets passed down to every generation and that you and I were born wretched, black-hearted sinners and you can either be in Adam, which really means that you are the boss of you 
or you can be in Christ, which means, okay, I resign the lordship of my life, and I ask Jesus to be my Lord. That's how you become in Christ. And when you do that, this should be encouraging to you all, that Paul refers to every person that's ever put their faith in Christ as a saint. Did you know that, Church of 1122, that if you're in Christ, you are a saint? Can you believe it? Now, I know some of you be like, oh, well, hold on, Pastor. I thought you told me I was a wretched, black-hearted sinner. Oh, you were. You were. In fact, it's worse than you think. I mean, you think you were bad. You were worse than bad. You were dead. And guess what dead people do? They just rot and stink. That's what they do, and that's what you were. But in Christ, you are now a saint. That should make you feel really good. Right? That you are a saint. That when God looks at you, he sees perfection. And to all my Catholic friends, I know half of you are Catholic here, and, and, and you out yourself every time we do communion, you try to steal the cup from us. You're like, give me that one. Like, no, no, no. It's, it's kind of a rip and dip deal, okay? But it's welcome Catholics, all right? You're here. All right, good job. So, saints aren't just dead guys that you vote on, you like build statues and buildings to them. But in Christ, every person that is in Christ is a saint, that you have been bought and paid for, and that, and that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your past or your sin or your temptation or any of that anymore, but he sees what Christ has done for you, and that makes you a saint. And you know what it should do? When you hear that you're a saint, and some of you are like, well, I don't feel like a saint. That's why I don't care about your feelings. You see, here's the thing. You are not your feelings. You are not your temptation. You are not your past. You are not your addiction. You are not your orientation. You are not your marital status. You are not the things that you used to do. You are not the things that you are struggling with now. That is not who you are. Because if you are in Christ, your identity is in Him. And if you are in Christ, you have died to yourself, and now Christ lives in you, and that makes you a saint. It also should free you from performance. You're also not your church attendance. You're not your tithing record. You're not... uh, a singer with your hands up or down. You're not your mission trip status. You're none of those things. But if you are in Christ, then you are a saint. And that should make you just relax a little bit. And here's why. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants to give you two things. He wants to give you grace and he wants to give you peace. And then 3 through 14, he's going to tell us how he does that. Now, identity. Identity is so important. It's really the foundation. But before you know who you are, you've got to know whose you are. Because if you know whose you are, if you know that you've been bought and purchased by God, and you've been claimed by God, then your activity can begin to follow your identity. And so, in 3, you get this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, whose are you? Well, if you're in Christ, that means that we serve a God, one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Fundamentally, that is the Godhead. That is who God is. Now, some of you go, God, that's hard to understand. Well, sure it is, because we've got these little peanut brains as humans, and we'll never be able to fully comprehend the sovereign God. It's impossible So if you find that some of this stuff is confusing, well, of course it would be confusing. It's like taking a little Dixie cup and going down to the Atlantic Ocean and trying to get all of that in your little cup. It just won't fit. 
And God is infinitely bigger than the Atlantic Ocean. And your brain and my brain is not much bigger than a Dixie cup. And so there's some confusing stuff. But there's one God, there's three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, taught us that God wants to be known primarily as Heavenly Father. That 189 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, who was God on earth, refers to God as our Heavenly Father. In fact, it's this crazy. When the disciples got together and said, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And Jesus says, okay, gather around, boys. This is how you pray. Ready? Here's how you start it out. Our Father. And, and to us, you know, we know the Lord's Prayer, so we don't think that's that big a deal. But to those 12 Orthodox Jewish guys, they were like, time out. No, no, no. It's Sovereign Lord. It's Maker of heaven and earth. And Jesus would say, yeah, that's true. But fundamentally, He wants you to know Him as Heavenly Father. And when you know that he's your heavenly father, then you can begin to know who you are. And when that identifies you or gives you your identity, then your activity can follow. And so that's verse, that's verse 3. And then 4 through 14, the rest of it tells us how God saves us. Tells us how we become a Christian. Tells us how we are bought and redeemed. Now, If you are uh, like an English major, you're really going to hate this. But from verse 3 to verse 14 is just one long run-on sentence. That's what it is. From verse 3 to 14, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired, infallible, inerrant, poorly punctuated, long run-on sentence that describes who God is as Heavenly Father that wants to give you every spiritual blessing in Christ and then goes on to tell how you become a Christian. Regardless of how it happened for you, this is the what happened, even if you didn't fully understand it. Now, um, if, if you're kind of a Bible nerd, you're going to love this, or if you're into systematic theology, which I know most of us are, uh, this is called the Orta Salutis. Say Orta Salutis. See, it's not just all redneck jokes and talking about dating. Uh, it's Orta Salutis means the order of salvation, and it's Latin, and, and it's systematic theology. And so, when you become a Christian, ten things happen. Now, here's the problem with systematic theology. is that it's hard to systematize an organic relationship. And so, what we're talking about here is this personal relationship that you have with God your Father through Jesus His Son and indwell with the Holy Spirit. So, if, if I were um, to try to systematize to you, here's the ten steps that happened when Gretchen fell madly in love with me, head over heels, and could not resist. Step one. She was, giving, she was given uh, the right genes to be very, very attracted to good-looking, smart, humble men, okay? <laughs> Step two. Met her in the gym, and there was an obvious attraction, and so she followed me around. Step three. I took her to Chili's, and there was a mixture of the dip and the salsa that stirred in her. You know, you could try to break it down, but it wouldn't fully describe everything that happened in our hearts. And so there's a little problem there when you try to describe these systematically. But here's what happens. Here's what happens if you've ever surrendered your life to Jesus. Here's what happens. Um, The first thing is election. That means that God chose you. And I don't have time to to unpack them all. In fact, if you want to hear me unpack them, you can go on the website, go to Master Plan. It was a series we did a while back, week two. 
just the whole sermon. I just unpack all ten of these. But, but there's election. God chooses you. You didn't choose him. There's the gospel call. That's what's happening right now. There's regeneration. That, that's that moment in time where, by God's grace, you begin to understand the gospel. Even if you'd heard it your whole life, but all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's starting to make sense. It's called regeneration. Uh, step four is conversion. That's that moment where, in our context, many of you raised your hand and said, all right, I surrender to Jesus. There's justification. That's where Christ's payment uh, on the cross and his resurrection pays for your sin, and you have a right legal standing before God. Step six is adoption, that not only does God forgive you, but he draws you into his family, changes your name, and pays for you. Step seven is sanctification. That just is that ongoing process where you grow to be more and more and more like Jesus. Step eight is perseverance, and that just means that you remain in that relationship with Jesus. Verse, I mean, uh, uh, step nine is death. And, and I know it's kind of weird to think about death as a part of your salvation, but, you know, it's the doorway to get to heaven. And then, and then part 10 is glorification, meaning that your body one day will be glorified and you'll be living in his glory forever and ever. So now when we get to verse 4, we'll see the Apostle Paul unpack all these things. And so here's what he says. Again, remember, there's God, and he's a father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants to bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here's how that happens, verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him, and there's that phrase, in him. Again, 10 times in these verses it's going to show up. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is big. Because pay attention. Guess what? If you were in Christ, I've got good news. God chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And he chose you before the foundation of time. You know what that means? Before you ever attended church, before you ever prayed a prayer, before you ever gave at church, before you ever signed up to go on a mission trip, before you ever did anything good or bad, that God chose you, that he wants you on his team. And we all have this fundamental desire where we want to be wanted. Do you remember those pressure-packed days of like second or third grade? When you're about to play dodgeball or kickball or something really life-changing and you're standing in line and they are picking a team... I don't know about you guys, but there were times where I'm standing in line and they're picking people and it's dwindling down and you go, oh no, I might get picked last. And then they pick the kid with asthma above you and you're like, you have got to be kidding me. He runs for three seconds and he's got to have, you know, medication. How, what? And it came down to like you and a potted plant and they went with the potted plant and you're like, oh great. Well, I've got good news. That dodgeball mattered very little. And what matters for all eternity is God chooses you and I don't know if this is exactly how it works but this is kind of how it how it goes down in my mind I, I, I kind of see God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit standing there picking teams and then you got a few angels on the side and then he looks and he says I want that one God says I want that one and then Michael runs up and is like hey but boss that one's really jacked up oh yeah he is a wretched black hearted sinner I mean he's a liar He's going to lie to you. He lies to himself. He lies to his wife. Every year, at New Year's, he writes a whole list of the lies that he's going to break for the rest of the year. And he's an idol worshiper, and he's rarely ever going to attend your church, and he's, he's going to skip the singing at the church he goes to, right, and just show up for the talking. And I'm telling you, he's crooked, and he's depraved, and he's selfish, and he's all of those things. He's insecure. And not only that, even if you pick him on the team, he's not even going to do a lot for us. 
He's not going on a mission trip. He's not sharing his faith. I mean, he's just going to kind of be kind of some dead weight on our team. And then God Almighty goes, I know all of that. And I want him for my team. Some of you, some of you, because of the way that you were raised, you actually think God is a little disappointed in you. You think God is going to love some future version of you once you get your act together. Well, isn't the truth that the cross has already outed you that you can't get your act together? Because if you could get your act together, Jesus wouldn't have to down the cross. And so when he chose you before the foundation of time, you get to relax because you're on the team regardless of your performance. And he chooses you. And he chooses you. This is really important. He chooses you so that we should be holy and blameless. You know what I think I'm going to start telling people when they say, how you doing? I'm going to go, holy and blameless. I think I'm going to do that. You know why? Because that's what it says we were chosen for, to be holy and blameless. How you doing? Man, I am holy and blameless. And you know, people will be like, well, you don't look very holy and blameless. But I know. I don't even feel very holy and blameless. But that, guess what? Feelings do not define who I am. But God says in his word that I am holy and blameless. And then you know what people will think? Well, if you could be holy and blameless, I think I could be holy and blameless. So you go, I know, come on, join the team, and you can be holy and blameless with me. Now, you can't be arrogant, because that's some still wretchedness that's still in there, right, that God's sanctifying out. But holy and blameless. Some of you need to hear this. Do you know that God has never been disappointed in you? Some of you think that we serve a God, and he's, I mean, he might let you into heaven just because he feels like he had to because you raised your hand in a service or something, but he doesn't really like you. I couldn't be further from the truth. He's never been disappointed in you. You know why you were disappointed in other people? Because you thought they were going to do one thing, and then they did something else. Do you realize God has never been surprised? God has never been anxious or worried. He's never gotten up one morning and go, oh, no, what are we going to do? They sinned. No, he knew everything that you have done, are doing, and will do, and still said, I want that one on my team. Even with all the junk? Yep. Even with all the junk. And he chose us to be holy and blameless. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, don't freak out about the predestination word, okay? It just means predestination. Some people are like, do you believe in predestination? I believe it's right here in the Bible. Here's what it means. You actually believe in predestination. You just didn't know it. Let's take the word and kind of divide it up. So, we'll start with the word destination, do you think God has a destination for your life? Or a simpler word from there, do you, do you think God has a destiny for your life? I do. If I would ask most of you in the room, you believe that God has a destiny for your life. The Bible teaches me that I was fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in my mother's womb, that God knew all the days formed for me, written in his book of life. I believe that I'm a, I'm a light of the world, sitting on a hill, that God placed me in Jacksonville for this time, for this part of my life, and that God has a purpose for me and a plan for me, and that's not to harm me, but to give me a hope and a future. I mean, don't you think God has a destiny for your life? I hope you do. If you don't, you should read the Bible. Because it tells you that God has a destiny for your life. He's got, he's got more in store for you than you could ever dream or imagine. That God has a destiny for your life. Well, if that's true, do you think he's um, making it up as he goes? Or do you think he's kind of worked on it beforehand? Do you think God wakes up in the morning and goes, Oh, no, what are we going to do? She went to the wrong college. Ugh, we had her all slated for state, but she went there. What are we going to do? No. No, God has never been surprised. 
And God has chosen you and worked on your destiny beforehand. Here's, here's what it's for. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That his will is that he would adopt you as his own child. I mean, this is a big deal. I can tell you, when I became a Christian, I was okay with the doctrine of justification. We'll talk about that in a little while. That a perfect God sent his perfect son to pay a debt that I could not pay so that I was forgiven. I was okay with that. But I always had a hard time grabbing on to the doctrine of adoption. That God didn't just forgive me my sins and pay for them and then say, okay, good luck. But he, he didn't just pay for me, but he brought me into his family. It would be like going to court and the judge says, I find you not guilty and I want you to move into my home. I'm going to feed you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to pay for your school, I'm going to do everything. My inheritance is yours. That's what God wants to do with you and with me. You know, we have an adoption ministry here at the Church of 1122, and the reason we have an adoption ministry is because it is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of the gospel. And if you will look on the back of your bulletin, there's a, an announcement about our Operation Adoption is having a beach day. I think it's July the 19th. And if you, whether you've adopted kids or not, if you would go out there and you would watch what was happening, you would see a picture of the gospel. You know what you would see? You would see parents that had picked their kids. You know, in adoption, the kids never pick the parents. It's not like eight parents walk into an orphanage and there's a kid there going, all right, y'all, come on in, turn around. Number three, turn around. Uh, I don't know. Uh, parents number four, Xbox or PlayStation? Oh, PlayStation, okay, get out, you're out. No, the parents don't... Uh, The kids don't pick the parents. The parents pick the kids. And not only that, the parents pay the price. Whatever the cost is, the emotional cost, the time cost, the physical cost, everything, the parents pay the cost. You've never heard of an adoption where the kid gets in and he's like, all right, what do I owe you? You know, I got to pay you back for adopting me. No, the parents pay the full price. And you change the kid's name to the parent's name. That's what happened when you and I became a Christian. We went from enemy of God to Christian, little Christ. And then the full inheritance of the parents are now the kids. And so if you were to go out and you were to watch these families, what you would see is you would see some parents playing with some children that used to not be their kids, and then now they are their kids, and they love them because they are their sons and daughters, and they have been adopted, chosen, and brought into the family as full sons and full daughters. And then when you get brought into the family, guess what? You grow up to be like your dad. Now, I know the teenagers just went, oh, no, say it ain't so. (laughs) Call us a wretched, black-hearted sinner, but I don't want to grow up and be like mom and dad. Well, it's happening, kids. I mean, it's just going to happen. Look, I'm 40 now. My dad's sitting on the front row. There are times when I walk by the mirror, and I go, what is Perry Martin doing in my house? I can see him. (laughs) And I say so many of the things that I promised I would never, ever say. I mean, I'll be spanking JP, and I'm like, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I can't, I can feel it coming. I'm like, no, 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 don't say that stuff. Or walk around, turn off lights. Anybody in this room? Anybody in this room? Why we got lights in this room? Or the door will be open a little bit. Guess we're going to AC the whole neighborhood, huh? Just all of Jacksonville right here, right? I'm telling you, you can't help it. You just grow up to be like your dad. And when you're adopted into the family of God, guess what happens? You begin to become more and more like him because... 
because he chose you and he changed your name and he paid for you and he adopted you and, and the inheritance is yours, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You talk to an adoptive family and you said, so who are the blessed ones? And the parents will say, oh, we're the blessed ones. We're so blessed that God worked out the details that we adopted our son or our daughter. But if you talk to the kid, they'll say, oh, well, I'm so blessed that God would orchestrate this thing, that I had some parents that would choose me. See, it's like a double blessing. When you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, God is glorified and you are blessed. Verse 7, it says, In him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So that forgiveness of our trespasses, that's called justification. But he says, in him we have redemption through his blood. That word redemption is important. That's how Christ purchased you. So every one of you that's ever uh, redeemed a Groupon, then you get the gospel. Because here's what you do, okay? You get the Groupon, and you go to the store. And I've never really done this, but if I go to the grocery store with a coupon, and I, I have a coupon for a free pack of crackers, all right, then I hand it to the lady, here you go, there's my coupon, and I redeem the coupon. And she hands me a free pack of crackers. And for me, what did it cost me? Nothing, nothing. All I had to do was redeem the coupon. I give you this, and you give me something. Wow, what a free gift. But guess what? It cost the cracker manufacturer the full price of the crackers. When Christ died on the cross for your sin, by his blood and through his resurrection, he redeemed you. That if you will just receive the free gift, you could be redeemed. Hey, uh, God, here's my Groupon for salvation, all right? I believe in you, and you get the free gift of salvation. And it was free for you, but it wasn't free for him. It cost him the full price of paying for all the sins of the world on the cross. And so every time you, you redeem a coupon, then I want you to see the gospel. That's what happens. It, it would be kind of like this, um, another illustration. Imagine, some of you don't have to imagine, but just if you were to log on to your, to your bank account, you know, there it is. And then you would go, oh no, I'm overdrawn. But imagine if you weren't just overdrawn a little bit, but you were overdrawn by trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. I know you can't imagine uh, an organization being, being in debt by trillions, but just, you know, use your head. <laughs> and you looked at that and you thought, oh no, what am I going to do? I mean, if I work every day for the rest of my life, every hour and never sleep again, I can't earn enough to, to, to get this back to the black. I can't do this. Like, I don't have enough in me to pay off this debt that I've incurred. And then if God steps into the picture and logs onto his account, and he's got trillions upon trillions times trillions, and he goes, hey, I'll tell you, I'll make a deal with you. It's like, okay, God, what's the deal? Um, you, let's just trade. Let's just trade, and I'll give you all that's in my account, and I'll take all of your debt. You go, well, I don't know, God. What do I have to do? Just receive it. That's the deal. Just receive it. Uh-huh. Yeah. You surrender to me. You get all mine. I get all yours. That's what theologians call, in justification, double imputation. That our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, and his righteousness was imputed to us. And that's why when he sees you, he sees you as a saint and not a sinner. And so, the Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. That it's just a trade. 
That's what redemption is. And so it says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. There's another part in the Bible where the Bible says, what manner of love that God has lavished upon us that we would be known as sons or daughters of God. You see, we serve a God that didn't just do enough to save you, but he lavishes his love upon anyone that would receive it because he wants you to be a son or a daughter. Listen, I know what it's like for, for parents to lavish love upon me. I mean, at Christmas time, at Christmas time, my daddy and Santa Claus would partner up in Mert's house and lavish love upon me. I mean, I remember one time for Christmas, I did not deserve it, and I got a motorcycle. Me and my brother got a motorcycle. I was in the sixth grade. What grade were you in? Third grade. You should get your third graders motorcycles, okay? And we crawled them up in Mert's house, just, just lavishing smoke where the love had been, all right? It was awesome. One year, I got a 66 Mustang. Not because I deserved it, but because my dad was lavishing love upon me. And we ran out there in, in our underwear and just drove around and did donuts in Mert's yard on the way to the gas station. I mean, it was awesome. Every parent in here, you have lavished love upon your kid if you're a good parent. Especially early. You remember? Remember when you first held your kid, when I first held JP, when I first held Reagan? I mean, I remember looking at him. And I remember thinking, I'm a kind of a violent guy. I just am. That's how I respond. I got to always watch that. But I remember thinking, I've always known I could kill somebody. But if somebody messes with this, I know how I would kill them, right? I'll start my prison ministry from the inside. I ain't scared. (laughs) And then you take them home and you love them so much. And honestly, what do they do for you? Nothing. Nothing. They're only a drain. They make your wife go crazy, okay? They don't let you sleep. They only make a mess. They cry a lot. They're selfish. Has anybody's kid here ever gone, no, no, just finish what you're doing? Never. Ever, ever, ever. They deserve nothing. But what do you do? You lavish. I mean, it's hugs and kisses and words and presents. It's whatever. It's whatever. You, you lavish your love upon them. And so when God redeemed you, he didn't do just enough for you to be forgiven and get the get-out-of-hell-free card. But he lavished his love upon you because he wants you to be a son or a daughter of his. He lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which set before in Christ. You know what his will is? Guess what his will is? I'll just read you Bible verses. 2 Timothy 2, 4. God desires that all people would be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. His will is that every single one of you in here and listening online and in the video venues, that all of us would receive his love. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That God wants to choose every single one of you that would just believe in him. Or Jesus gives this invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. You know what will wear you out in church? Thinking that you have to be good enough to be a Christian. You can't carry that weight, and you weren't meant to. That debt has been paid. And so Jesus says, anybody that would trust me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest for your soul. Or in John three sixteen, this is a popular one. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. That God's will is that you would be a whosoever. And that you would put your trust and your faith in Him that He might lavish His love upon you. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is a big deal that that your salvation is not just about your personal relationship with God, but when Jesus died on the cross and resurrected on the third day, that He was going to unite all things in Him. Guess what? One day, one day all things will be made new. One day, we won't age. One day, there are no more tears. One day, there's no more sickness or death or dying or tornadoes or hurricanes or natural disasters. There's no disease. There's no cancer. There's no hunger. That everyone that is in Christ is at his banqueting table and there are no more tears. And that's bigger than just your personal relationship with God. That's why if you are in Christ, we do things like go on mission trips and sponsor Compassion Kids and partner with people that are in need in our city to help fulfill as a precursor this truth what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. That this is how big the gospel is. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, in him, there it is again about identity, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works in all things according to the counsel of his will. See, one of the things as we read through the book of Ephesians that you're going to see is that Paul never got over his salvation. Like, he couldn't get over the fact that he was a wretched, black-hearted sinner, the greatest among all sinners. That's what he said about himself. And yet, when he woke up in the morning, when he was in Christ, he woke up every morning in Christ as a son of God. With with the full inheritance of God purchased for him. And that he was dead to himself, and now Christ lived in him. Do you know what that means? That means the Christian wakes up and they understand that all that was Christ is yours. That when Jesus was asleep down at the bottom of the boat and the waves and the storm came up and it was rocking the fishermen and the fishermen got freaked out and they got anxious and they went and woke up Jesus from his nap, which by the way, it is not biblical for you to wake up people from their naps, okay? Leave them alone. And they wake up Jesus and said, don't you even care about us? The wind and the waves are going to kill us. You ever get worried? You ever get anxious? You ever get freaked out by your external circumstances? When Jesus gets up from the boat, gets up from his nap, and he walks up on the, on the deck of the boat, and he says, be still. Peace I give to you. He was talking to the wind, the waves, and the dudes on the boat. Guess what? If you're in Christ, that peace is yours. That peace is yours. You ever go through times where you're just, where you're just weeping and sad because of loss? Jesus shows up to a, in John chapter 11, Jesus shows up um, to a funeral of one of his best friends. Lazarus, and he weeps and he cries for a little while, and then he says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he goes to the grave, and he says, Lazarus, come out. You know why he had to say Lazarus? Because if he'd have just said, come out, there'd be like a hundred dead guys, come hopping on out. He'd go, no, go back, go back, go back. You, come here, go. Guess what? That power, if you're in Christ, that's in you. Christ brings life for eternity. And so what he's saying here is that that inheritance is ours. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him, there it is again, in him you also Not just Paul, not just Timothy, not just people that you think are good Christians, but in him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know what that means? For some of you, this is happening right now as I speak. That for the very first time, I mean, you've been to church before. You've heard sermons before. But somehow, by the grace and mercy of God, for the very first time, you're actually, it's making sense. That it's like something's kind of clicking. Now, you don't understand it all, but you understand, I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to me. That's what he's talking about here when he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You know, I have people ask me all kind of questions about the Bible. They're like, hey, what do you, well, what does the Bible mean when it says this? And, and what about the dinosaurs? And what about the, the, the man that was on the island that nobody could ever talk to? I'm like, do you know that guy? Because uh, we should send somebody to tell him about Jesus. But let's talk about your salvation. Your salvation. Guess what? It says that when you begin to hear the message of your salvation and believe in him, it doesn't say fully understand. But that you begin to believe. That you take your faith, you take your trust, and you say, okay... God, I'm going to believe in you that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and he was resurrected on the third day. You go, but but I thought you had to be good. No, 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 no. No. You can't be good, right? You've tried, haven't you? Has anybody lied to you more than you? Has anybody broken their own rules more than you? I mean, you've promised you all kind of stuff, all kind of stuff, and you can't even keep your own rules. In fact, it's not about being good. It's about being saved, even with your questions, even with your doubts. In fact, if you read through, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, if you read through there and you have a lot of doubts and you have a lot of questions and you have a lot of things that you don't understand, but you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I've got good news for you. You'll make a great disciple. You will make a great disciple. There's still a lot of things I don't understand and that that I can't just tie up in a nice little bow. But I've decided to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. And in fact, I would warn some of you of this. If you think you've got it all figured out, I mean, if you think you've got it all figured out and you know where everybody's going to go and exactly how they're getting there and you've got it all figured out, guess what? You would have been in another group called the Pharisees. And that was the wrong team. And so what Jesus, I mean, what Paul is saying here is that when you heard the word of truth, you begin to make sense at a head level and at a heart level. And then you believe in him. Now, this, is, this word's important. In Greek, it's called pistuo. It means to believe, to trust, to commit your whole life into. Now, there's a big difference between believing that and believing in. Like, for instance, I believe that there is a football team down in Gainesville, Florida. Okay? I believe it exists. I believe I'll see them this year. But I believe in another group. Okay? So that means, like... Like, I believe that they're there, but I ain't putting on jean shorts. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not in. I just acknowledge. There's a lot of you, that's the way you've treated Christianity. And the crazy thing is, you actually think you're a Christian because you believe that. And you've never trusted, put your faith in. You've never believed in Jesus. And so he says that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, him or trusted in him or put your faith in him that you were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory this is good news too guess what that you can't lose your salvation you know why it's not yours to lose you didn't find it 
that God chose you and purchased you and paid for you. The only way you could lose your salvation if it's if the Holy Spirit is incompetent. Now, see, I lose stuff all the time. Like, I lose the remote control. You ever do this? You're like, where is the remote? I mean, it's got to be within this general area right here by the TV. Where could it be? And then you look and you look and you look. And you're like, it's in the truck. How do you get in the truck? I don't know. I'm just, I'm, well, maybe this is a good place for it. And I take it to the truck, all right? That is not how your salvation goes. Because it's not up to you to keep up with it. It's up to Christ in you. That should be a... That should be a freeing reality of the gospel. Therefore, you're not bound by activity, but you get to walk out the freedom of your identity in Christ. So here's the bottom line. The point is this. Because it is God that saves, that you are chosen, you are forgiven, you are free of performance, you are adopted, and your inheritance is guaranteed. And this is huge. Even if you don't even understand all that stuff. If you say, okay, I want to believe. I want to put my faith in Jesus, but I can't walk through the order of Salutis. It doesn't matter. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says it this way. He says, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Let me listen to this. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Theories as to about how it did this are another matter. A good many different theories have been held as to how it works. What all Christians are agreed on is that it does work. I'll tell you what I think it's like. All sensible people know that if you are tired and hungry, a meal will do you good. But the modern theory of nourishment, all about the vitamins and proteins, is a different thing. People ate their dinners and felt better long before the theory of vitamins was ever heard of. And if the theory of vitamins is someday abandoned, they will go on eating their dinners just the same. Theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works. And you know how I know this is true? Because that's my story. When I was a teenager at Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center that Mert used to drop me off at, the gospel was explained to me. And I'd heard it for a few years before it like finally sunk in. And I remember one night at Camp Pine Hill sitting there and the gospel was not explained to me by a pastor or by a theologian. It was a, a, the guy that was explaining the gospel to me was a guy that knew more about the wing key formation than he did about substitutionary atonement. I don't even know if he knew that word. But he knew Jesus. And he knew that Jesus, de- death on the cross and his resurrection somehow would make me right with God. And so with all my doubts and all my fears and all my misunderstandings, and all my bad theology, in that moment, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And God saved me, justified me, adopted me, and gave me an inheritance sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It'd be kind of like this. You see, you can believe that there's a stool sitting there. But as long as you just believe that there's a stool, it will never hold you up. You have to get to the place where you believe in, where you trust in, where you put your full faith in. And in fact, I don't know everything about this stool. I mean, I know some things. I can see it's made of wood. I can see it's got four legs. But I don't know what kind of wood it's made of. I don't know what kind of varnish or stain they used. I don't know for sure that it will hold me up. I don't even know how it's held together. I don't see any nails or screws or bolts or anything. But I know it's a stool. And again, if I believe that there's a stool, it really doesn't change me at all. It is not until I take all of me 
and put it on this stool. I take all of my faith and all of my trust and all of my commitment. And it doesn't even work if you do a little bit of me and a little bit of stool. Because I'm still trusting me. But faith is trusting that the stool can hold all of me. Even though sitting on the stool, I still don't know the kind of wood it's made of. I still don't know how it's held together. And those things do not negate the fact that the stool is holding me up. Same thing is true with you. That today, if you've heard the truth of the gospel of your salvation, that you could put your belief or your faith or your trust in Christ, that you could be chosen for his team, justified by his death and his resurrection, and adopted into his family And the inheritance, the inheritance can be sealed today by the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what do you have to do? Just say, all right, Lord, here I am. I receive it. I surrender my life. I'm going to take all of me, and I'm going to trust you to be the Lord of my life. Would you please bow your head right where you are and close your eyes, not because it's magical or churchy, but because I just want you to block out any distractions that you might have. For many of you, maybe you thought that you believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but you've never trusted Him as your Lord and Savior. Some of you believe that. You were too bad to be saved. It's just because you didn't know how big the gospel of grace is. And so today, I would like to ask if, if you, for the very first time, would like to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, to put your faith in Him and not in you anymore, that you would receive that gift of salvation. You would be redeemed And you would just raise your hand right where you are. And you would say, Father, here I am. I received that free gift of salvation. And and if you've got your hand in the air, it's not a hand up that saves you. It's what Christ did on the cross in his resurrection. And that you would pray a very simple prayer. You would just admit to God that you've been the Lord of your own life and that you need a Savior. That you would believe in what Christ did on the cross to pay for your sin. And you would confess him as Lord. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much. That there's salvation in this place. That men and women and students even today have surrendered unto you. God, I thank you that it is not the presentation of the gospel, but the power of the gospel that saves. And God, we rejoice with the angels in heaven that are rejoicing for the men and women in this place that today have gone from death to life. And God, I also pray for the people that have been Christians for a while, Lord, and they know that they've been saved by grace but they feel like they've got to work their way to stay in the family. Lord, I pray that the idea of adoption would just sink deep into their soul, that the gospel would penetrate the the very depths of their heart and that we would know not only are we saved by grace, but we're maintained by your grace. That God, our activity is a result of our identity and not the other way around. God, I thank you so much that you love us, not some future version of us, but you love us and you lavish your love upon us. God, we rejoice in that. And we pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And would you please stand as we respond? A big part of the reason we respond this way is because we believe that worship is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. And God has saved some people today in our very midst, and he deserves to be worshiped and praised for that. If you are a regular here, we respond by bringing our tithes and offering to the giving boxes all around the room or the giving kiosk in the back. And then many of you need to respond by coming down to the altar and kneeling before the Lord and just laying your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Let us respond.